You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. Welcome to episode one of this Tea Break Time Travel. I'm your host, Matilda Siebrecht, and today I am savouring a green peach tea, which I have to say is really, really good. A lot better than I was expecting it to be. Joining me on my tea break today is Sarah Lord from Potted History. Are you also a tea drinker? Or are you more a coffee I'm, person? I'm a tea, no, no coffee, not at all. <laughs> but I, just, I'm just drinking very regular British bog standard tea today. Nothing too exciting. <laughs> milk and sugar? Um, no sugar, but yeah, milk. Strong milk. and bit of milk. Oh, excellent. I actually never used to drink black tea with milk. I was very much of the strong, no, we don't want milk variety. And then for some reason over Christmas, I was in a hotel or something and I had some milk in my tea and it was like, oh, this is really good, actually. Like I can it's see why. I don't like if it's overpowering, but just a little bit of milk, just perfect. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, no, yeah. it's really good. It was mainly because I got into chai teas at some point. I thought they were coffee for some reason. And then someone was like, no, they're teas. And I'm like, oh yeah, of course it's in the name. And of course they're with milk, which I was like, yeah. Anyway, anyway, sorry. Um, so yes, good, good. A fellow tea drinker, excellent. One of my first conversations I had with someone about this, and I said, "Oh, but do you drink tea, or are you more coffee?" So it was like, "Actually, I don't like hot beverages at all." I was going, "Oh, right, okay." <laughs> this conversation is going to end very quickly. <laughs> but, uh, so, Sarah, so you are from Potted History. The for those yep. who are unaware, the business that makes amazing clay replicas. I have several on my shelf beside Thank me here. You. Uh, so originally. Are you an archaeologist or historian or a potter? Well, uh, we can't really claim. We, we, we do say we do experimental archaeology, but we're not. Neither of us, uh, my dad or I, um, are actually trained as archaeologists. Both would have to say potters, but we're potters with a very, very strong interest in ancient pottery. And we do a lot of research into it. And in fact, we help other people get their PhDs, but neither of us have ever done it. <laughs> Overrated. Trust me, yeah. someone is doing it at the moment. <laughs> if you don't need one, don't do it. <laughs> well, I don't think we really need one. Um, so no. potter, I'd have to say definitely potter first. Okay. And what got you into history? I mean, I joined the business after dad did. I think we've all got, all of us have got like a fascination with history. I was never interested in it that much at school because it was mainly about dates and battles. Mm. But I think once it twigged that history isn't just about dates and battles, that it's about the actual people. I, I mean, yeah, that I've been hooked ever since. So, yeah, I think always ha have had a like that core of interest. And then when dad said he needed an apprentice, I said, yeah, I'll join. And he thought I was joking. And then I quit my job as a teacher and, and he realized <laughs> I, I wasn't know. joking. <laughs> 
and there was no turning back from there. So, so I mean, that's when really, like, really got in deep when I actually properly joined the business. But uh, yeah, I, I like I can enthuse about history and archaeology and the things that we know and understand about people. I could just talk about it for hours. I get very excited about it. <laughs> well, that's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> From our perspective as well. It's yeah, amazing. Right. I'm always happy when people want to talk about history and archaeology. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get into, I guess, that a bit later again. But uh, seeing as you're now sort of so ingrained in history and, you know, love your history again, if you could travel back in time to a historic period, where exactly would you go? Um, I mean, I don't know if it's because we're talking about Dolny Vecinita, but I think <laughs> just, I, I wouldn't go anywhere too fancy. I would just want to go and see and sit with a potter. Obviously, there'd be no language barriers whatsoever. <laughs> We'd be able to like, have a full chat. <laughs> um, Google Translate. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I think going back and just sitting with the people and just observing what was going on just for a day would be fascinating. I would want to see them cooking and eating and just all of the normal everyday stuff that people were doing. That That's what I would like to do. So just to go back in time and be with a historic potter of some yeah. description. Oh, I can imagine. Amazing. That yeah. would be, I do, I agree. I'd really love that idea of not necessarily going back for a big event or a exciting burial or anything like that, but just to see how life was lived in the past, because that is definitely something yeah. that's difficult to grasp, I guess. Uh, yeah, perfect. yeah. And I think it would t- tell us a lot more because if you understand some of the basics, some of the, you know, just the way things were used, because, you know, there's so many objects and we, we talk about how we think they might have been used, but the truth is we're all guessing. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there is research that has been done into it, but a lot of it is just kind of us seeing the information, the small amount of information we have, and then kind of making up a reasonable conclusion from that. But to just be able to see and actually see things being used, I, yeah. I, reckon, I reckon the amount of information you could get within 24 hours of just watching would be mind-blowing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Although also part of it would be the, I don't know, to me, part of the fascination of archaeology is the fact that we will never know. So oh, yeah, yeah. you're taking away that mystery. So I guess on the one hand, it would be amazing. But on the other hand, imagine if, you know, it's completely, I don't know, boring yeah. or, or, or I think wrong, all, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If it was boring, that'd be terrible. You'd be like, "Oh, nothing." <laughs> Not writing this up. <laughs> uh, yes, no, no. I, I always say to people, archaeology is just like a detective story, apart from the last like ten pages have been ripped out of the book, so you yeah. never find out what actually happened. But I think that's that is what, also what makes it exciting because we make things and we theorize about what it's used for. And then somebody does some research or publishes some research or whatever it is. And suddenly we're like, oh, okay. So we sort of have to rethink. So from that point of view, it is really exciting. You you can never stop learning and discovering, which I think is is pretty wonderful about archaeology. I mean, obviously there is a frustrating element of sometimes not knowing. (laughs) (laughs) Very true, very true. But indeed, it's also almost a bit encouraging because then you're going, well, I, it might not be the right answer, but no one could prove I'm wrong. <laughs> well, obviously it has to be based on evidence. For those people listening in, you can't just make up things about the past. It has to be based on physical evidence, <laughs> which is what we're talking about. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for joining my tea break today. And before we look at today's object, we shall indeed do a journey back in time, specifically to 29,000 years ago to the site of, now I say Dolini Vestanitse because I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly. How do you say it? 
Dolny Vesternitsa, but I don't know. That's probably, that sounds better. So the sign of Dolny Vesternitsa in the Czech Republic, although obviously at this time, who knows what they actually called uh, this location, this part of the world. The night is starting to draw in. So a fire has been lit in the center of the campsite, the flickering flames lighting up the faces of all those people gathered around to share the warmth. It's been a very busy day, but now is the time for pause and reflection. One set of hands is busy, though, molding together lumps of clay gathered from nearby, working and smoothing to create head, legs, hips, breasts. The figure, finalized, is held up to the light for inspection. One of the small children gathered around holds out a curious hand and the figurine is passed over. Later, unfortunately, it is broken, so left in the fireplace, a memory of the peace of dusk in the whirlwind of life. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. The Venus of Dolny Vestonice. The Venus, the Venus of Dolny Vestonice. The nice thing is they probably also wouldn't have called it that. So, you know, it's, no, it's fine. Exactly. <laughs> and so we'll get into the details soon. But first of all, I always like to look at what the most asked questions on the Internet are about this object using good old Google search. By putting in Venus of Dolny Vestonice, actually, there weren't that many results that came up for this one. I guess yeah. she's not quite as well known, maybe, she's as some not. of the other Venus figurines. But the first one that came up is, why is the Venus of Dolny Vestonice important? She is the, the, one of the oldest ceramic objects. So she dates back to the Ice Age, so the end of the Ice Age. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about 26,000 BC, and mm-hmm. she is about 4,000 years before the neck, like before ceramic vessels. So we're talking pots. She's just the, an example of the first use of clay being formed into an object and then they chose to make her. I mean, alongside other items, she was found with animals and also little male figures as well. Mm-hmm. She shows what people were doing when they first discovered the use of clay, which is, is fascinating. And it's this early art. The, the people who were making her were Denisovians as well. So, so we're not talking about modern humans. We're talking about ancient human people and and the, the use that they found for clay. So... She's, she's, you know, she's, she's vital. I think I can't, I can't, you know, it's, it's the idea of art is so important to us nowadays. It's in everything. Even people who claim not to partake in art still have opinions on the things that they see around them. I don't think any of us can be completely devoid of, of having art within our lives. And she is one of the earliest examples of art. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah, which I guess answers the next question, which is what was the Venus of Dolny Vestonice used for? So your opinion, and I think one of the, probably the most popular opinion is indeed it was a, a figurine, an art form, yeah. just for the sake of art? Or do you think she had a, I, I hate the term ritual, but ritual. <laughs> obviously it has um, to be brought in when yeah, talk about figurines. It, it, it is a difficult one. I mean, I was brought up in Southern Africa, so um, the little animal figures that came with her were pl- like, there are similar ones made in a very similar way where I was brought up in the Sutu and the children would play with them. So, uh, you know, they would have that, like a lot of these children would end up perhaps being herd boys later in life. So when they played with the cattle, they were almost playing out their future role, if that makes sense. Hmm. So... So, yeah, I think I think it is possible that it, it, it was ritualistic. Uh, but I think there is also an argument for it being maybe I don't know if all of them were because, like I say, she was found with a number of objects. But but it, there could be a use potentially as toys. I mean, I'm not I'm not sure, but certainly 
you know, uh, girls and boys nowadays, but but it, there does seem to be a natural mm. inclination often with girls and dogs. As and much as we would try to I've got a son and, and he he does have a baby doll, but he just isn't as interested as that as he is with the knives and the bows and the arrows. And we, we've got them both. And there does seem to be an inclination towards it. It is possible. But then also in the Sutu, that there were, there were ritualistic dolls. So we have got a ritualistic thing. And, and I'm comparing this because if you think... Uh, I know we think we're all so unique, but I, I've seen similar sort of items or similar sort of concepts used in other countries. And I think it's important to look worldwide at what people come up with to help mm-hmm. us understand the past, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. And certainly in the Sutu, they, they, they have these dolls that um, a woman would or a young woman would have when she is um, getting married. And this, this doll, which is made out of beads, is, is hung on her skirt and it's kept there until she becomes pregnant. Once she becomes pregnant, the doll is broken down and then made into a grass skirt. So the doll, it's like a, a, a wish. It's like a hope that it, 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 it hangs there as, I suppose, a talisman for, for the hope of a child. So you, so you do wonder perhaps these were used as talisman and there were a lot of broken ones. They could have been broken in the firing, but they could also be the, that idea that once it's fulfilled its usefulness, you've got a baby, it's then broken. Mm. So I think there's so, as we were talking about before, there's so many possibilities. If you start looking around and start thinking about it, there are so many kind of possibilities that we will never know what she was used for. But I think I find the theories very fascinating. Yeah, make, definitely. Yeah. And also this idea, indeed, that she, it's just so long ago. I mean, the cons, just the, the amount of time is just yeah. almost impossible to, to fathom, really. And like you mentioned that she was around even before, 4,000 years before the first kind of pots were being made, which, yeah. you know, we think, oh, yeah, it was a while ago. But if you think, no, no, it was even... yeah. It, it's so hard. I mean, um, as I understand it, the chemical analysis of the kiln site that they were using mammoth bone oh, as wow. a fuel. Yeah. So when you just like, you know, that the mammoths just seem. So, mammoths almost seem like dinosaurs. You know what I mean? I, I know. I know. There's a lot further back, but they just seem so old that yeah. it's really quite hard to get your head around that she is that old. But yeah. mammoths, we're talking about mammoth hunters here. Yeah, no, yeah. it's incredible. And yeah, indeed, like you say, it's sort of, I think it's definitely essential that we look in all around the world, really, because the fact that it was so long ago, it's, I mean, so unrelated to maybe any modern human yeah. cultures. But so in that case, and you can really get inspiration from anywhere because it's not like we yeah. have to look at Czech culture in order to understand no. who was there 29,000 years ago. No, and I think this is it. I think it's, it's just looking at all of the possibilities and, and considering them carefully. Um, I mean, I have heard some crazy ones. I mean, there was one theory, and I can't remember, it was a book I was reading recently, and they reckoned that her arms are actually wings and that she's, and that the, that she's a bird goddess or something. There are some theories that oh. I reckon we can probably do without but um <laughs> but you know, how did they uh I, I don't know I don't, I don't I don't know I don't know but but so, yeah so it's, it is very interesting to kind of to, to listen to all the theories but but you can definitely get carried away I suppose is what I'm saying yes no I think with all as with all things I suppose archaeologically it's uh yeah one of my favorite things are these kind of mystery objects you know like the Scottish carved stone balls and the Roman de- yeah. dodecahedron 
Hydra and everything. And it's always fun to have discussions with people. But then at the end of the day, everyone's just going, well, you know, oh, well, we'll never know. Who knows? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, who knows? <laughs> and it's a nice, satis- I find it very satisfying to be I able to just. Satisfying. And we, in amongst all of that, maybe we got it right. In, you know, in amongst yeah. all of the theories, maybe yeah. we've got it right. Um, yeah, the, the stuff, the, the carved stone balls are one of the things that I find also particularly fascinating as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and my, I would. That is one thing. If I would travel back in time, I think I'd go back to find out. the carved stone ball maker and, and yes. just be like, "So why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is this?" Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, thank you very much uh, for enlightening us. We know well. <laughs> I would like to say we know a little bit more about the Venus of Donibeth than we did, but we don't, I guess that's the point we're making. <laughs> Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think we should mention it because we've been using the term, or I've been using the term anyway, uh, Venus so far. But, for example, on your website, and I've seen in a lot of other places as well, these figurines are not referred to as Venuses, but just as women. So what's the kind of discussion around that? I think there's a, there's a number of things. I mean, the first off being that Venus was a Roman goddess who definitely didn't exist when these statues were being made. Well, so, did she? <laughs> well, yes, I suppose it depends on your belief. I don't believe she existed. Fair, fair. Okay, good, good, good. I think she was created by people a lot later on. So it's, it's very confusing. It, 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 can, it can make the history feel a little bit blurry. But the, the other thing is, is that the use of the term Venus, it was almost sometimes used ironically. I think when the Willendorf was was found, she was named Venus, but but she was also called grotesque. Mm. So it feels like they're kind of like almost yeah yeah like it's an ironic term that she isn't really. And and I don't think that's fair because she's she's beautiful as is um, the Dolny Vestinitsa. They're both beautiful in their own right. And so I don't think we want to stick with anything that has that kind of negative connotations. It also has a connection with Sarah Bartman, who was in the 19th century, she was put on on display essentially in London and like traipsed around London and she was called the Hottentot Venus. And all of these kind of connections, it just feels a bit grubby and a bit unpleasant. And she had a really miserable time because because they, they essentially they took away her humanity and she was no longer a woman she was a venus and if she was a venus she wasn't she didn't have feelings she you know and it becomes quite objectified and i think that can be a problem and unfortunately even after her death sarah's body was was put on display so again we've we've just stripped all of the humanity out of out of it by by claiming them to be a venus not a human does that make 
Yes. Yeah, no, you I see, think that makes sense. So I think that there, there's there's been a change. Uh, there's been a preference for people not to call them Venuses to kind of give them back their human form, give them back their womanhood, and say it, it's okay to celebrate the female form as a female form, not as a deity or something other. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And although there is also that extra. I mean, we don't have to go into too much detail with this. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about the clay in a sec. But um, I'm just curious what your opinion is in terms of this assumption that the Venus figurines or the, the women figurines represent kind of mother goddesses, fertility symbols, that kind of thing, rather than indeed individual women. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is it because we don't understand. We don't know. We don't know who they represented. I mean, certainly when you look at both of them and you look, I mean, I'm holding a replica of the Donny Vestinitsa here. There's a clear understanding of how the flesh kind of hangs on a body. You've got the sort of the, the, the ripples at the back, at her back. You've got the pendular breasts. You've got a stomach that looks like she may have had a baby, so it's sort of sagging slightly. To me, the person who made this, they've seen a woman like this. They haven't, they haven't imagined it. They haven't created it um, as some kind of mythical thing. So I feel like it must have been modelled on a woman or, or women that were seen within the community. Whether after they'd modelled it, it, it became something else, I, I, yeah. Again, we just will never know. I also happen to have a very nice figurine that I bought from a certain <laughs> shop, uh, which <laughs> in my hands right now. And indeed, I really like the idea of, especially when I was pregnant, I was sort of looking at them going, yeah, I could yeah. imagine if I didn't have any mirror and I just was looking down at myself, you know, then yeah, yeah. this is also what I would see. <laughs> I think like yeah. and, and you can see those breasts, obviously there's no support there. Like that the bras hadn't clearly been invented. So no. you yeah, you end up with these, yeah, with these very kind of pendular breasts. And you can imagine this isn't this isn't a young woman. This is somebody who's lived, probably given birth maybe more than once. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, I I, uh, I I really like that's my favorite theory personally. Yeah. Although I what I really love about this particular Venus or women, woman, I mean, was that there was analysis done at some point, which found a, a what they think was a child's fingerprint yes. on the back, which I love that idea of potentially, and someone suggested, or oh, maybe it was actually children could have made these as well. Do yeah, you think that's it, a possibility? If I remember correctly, the, the fingerprint is on the bottom and I have an eight-year-old son. And if I have these lying out, he is guaranteed to come and poke one of them in the bum. So it, it's kind of like, you know, it's, for me, that's what it conjures up. Like I, like we, George comes into the workshop and he's kind of present sometimes. And there, there are times, don't touch that. Stop that. Don't do that. You know, and, and that's my imagining of it is that they made this thing. They've set it out to dry and a curious finger has gone and just had a little prod but again it's it's that kind of that lovely idea that that we we can come up with our own sort of stories but but i mean i don't think it's impossible that children made that we've had um children come into the workshop and in fact my son he's he's very capable at, at making things so i think if you had a child in training and they practiced i don't see why a younger person couldn't have made it, it is a well thought out, well designed, carefully made object, mm. but they didn't have, you know, iPads and they didn't have CBBs. So <laughs> children would have been, you know, probably spending more time learning these sorts of skills yeah. um, than our children perhaps get the opportunity to do. But yeah. Yeah. I, I was just thinking, actually, have you made any of these with a fingerprint on the bottom? 
Um, we don't, we don't uh, avoid. So if I see a fingerprint, I don't, I don't panic and try and get it off. We don't specifically put one on, on the same spot generally, um, <laughs> partly because we, we kind of, eat, whenever we make something, we are trying to replicate it. And it does vary depending on what the requirement is. But we, we kind of try and make it the, the soul, if that makes sense. Mm. If, you, if you try and recreate something so accurately that it becomes an obsession, you, you almost lose what's beautiful about a handmade object, which is its imperfections. Mm. So when we make things, we kind of accept that there will be, there will be fingerprints on them. 100% there will be fin- fingerprints on them. I'm looking at this one to see if I can find um, fingerprints. <laughs> but whether they're in the same spot or not, we don't obsessively try to do mm. that oh in fact i can see one on the neck of this one um where, i'm trying where to I, look and see if yeah, i have any i don't yeah. know if i do but it's, yeah. uh, i was just curious i thought you know that would be indeed very very at some point i mean to be honest we do sometimes don't tell graham but occasionally when he's making big amphora and stuff i like to put a little fingerprint on the inside of someone <laughs> just give it a prod whilst he's not watching but i love the idea of of that fingerprints and stuff he's laughing at me from the background <laughs> um, i just love the idea of that 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 piece that that piece of information being stored and that one day in a, a thousand years or whatever when they are looking at uh, objects made nowadays my fingerprint could be <laughs> sitting there and someone will be like oh there's a fingerprint i wonder who the potter was i just yeah, there'll be a it. whole paper what? written on it oh, yeah amazing <laughs> scientific analysis and actually uh, it was just you nice. <laughs> yeah just me tinkering about <laughs> <laughs> but again that relates to what we were talking about earlier right of the whole it's just every day and i really love that as well when you can actually see like in some pots where you can see the finger marks of the potters yeah. and uh, my favorite thing ever was something i saw on twitter or something of like ancient cats and you can see on some like medieval manuscript and then there's little cat paw prints going over yeah. the top or something because some cats obviously yeah. stepped in the inkwell and it's like oh, it just I love humanizes that. the past yep. like roman roof tiles with uh, you know children's feet pig's feet and, and yeah. they often tell stories because you'll have children and pig's feet and you were like either a child was being chased by a pig or a pig was being chased by a child and you kind of that little <laughs> moment is just stored in time for us to kind of wonder about yeah. i think it's fascinating and again, probably was just a, you know, unimportant moment, but it's something that just, yeah, it, it I think it makes it more relatable, right? Like it makes the past yeah. something that we can relate to, which uh, yeah. I love anyway, personally. That's what I love the most, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about how these were really beautifully crafted, obviously objects. I mean, so these are indeed, she, you mentioned that she is one of the earliest clay objects that you have, or that we have as humanity. How easy would it have been to make them? I mean, what sort of knowledge, because I'm I'm thinking of sort of firing processes and all of this kind of thing. I mean, what would there have been actually clay objects being made a lot longer before, or do you think it was? Well, we, we don't know for sure. And the one of the things, unfortunately, about prehistoric pottery is... The, the how low fired it is so mm. you want your ceramics if you want it to become ceramics you've got to fire it over um, 550 degrees at that point the chemical reaction and the crystallizing of the material means that you've got something that technically is ceramic to get it really uh, you know to get it like really strong you want to go much higher 800 degrees is probably about what they were getting which mm. means you end up with something that that's relatively fragile and 
um, I, I think most people have had a ceramic pot in their garden or a ceramic ornament, ornament in their garden and it, it gets the frost into it and it cracks and it crumbles oh, yes. apart. I had that and, with my yeah. bay tree pot last year. Yeah, <laughs> I know, and it's, it's, it's really, really annoying. But once, <laughs> once the water's got into those cracks, I mean, there's nothing that you can do about it. So, so it's hard to say whether she is the, 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 the earliest one or that these are the earliest objects because there could have been earlier things that just disintegrated. We did an experiment with a large vessel, and we've kind of we've got one in the in the the yard at the minute, where we leave it out for the elements to do with what they will. And we found that within about two years, a, a, like a large, I think a large urn, it was you couldn't see it anymore. It just disintegrated into nothingness, a combination of being cracked by the frost, then insects move into it. And then once the insects have moved into it, the birds get interested in it and they start flinging it round to get the insects out. And it just slowly gets broken smaller and smaller. So, it, it's possible that there were a lot more. I mean, maybe everyone was making these. Maybe there was a mass industry. It's hard to know. <laughs> but, um, uh, but they just weren't surviving because they are so low fired. So it, it, it's, it's hard to say if, if everyone was doing them. But in terms of skill, the, the, she took skill. The, the animals were more crudely kind of pinched together, but she she would have taken quite a bit of skill to model and to carefully um, get into shape. And I'm, I'm guessing they probably will have had bone tools. We use quite a lot of bone tools. And then you would need a fire. I mean, it's not that much of a startup kit i mean most people could go into their garden dig up some clay and make themselves a pot mm-hmm. i think we are blessed with clay in this country um, <laughs> although if you're a garden gardener you wouldn't say blessed i was about to say my husband definitely wouldn't agree with that <laughs> <laughs> we are cursed with clay in this country <laughs> but but yeah so so you know uh yeah it, it doesn't take much i think i've rambled now i'm trying to decide whether i've even answered the question to be honest. <laughs> no, I think so. No, but it's because it is, it's fascinating. It's this idea of, because I mean, we think of, or at least I think of, I have to say, as someone who's tried to make their own things and sometimes succeeded, but you know, especially when you're a child, you just want it to be simple and you just want to make a clay thing and maybe yeah. you put it in the oven, you know, like that Fimo clay stuff. And yeah. it's so easy, but then actual proper ceramics and pottery, you know, yeah. it takes a lot longer. And so the idea of how people got there i mean when that, why, how do you think they discovered that well, the, and, and donny vesnita where they were making it they'd actually dug a hearth into a clay bank so mm-hmm. if you think about um i mean cooking it is easier done if you can do it so you don't have to crouch down so it is perfectly possible that these people saw this soil that that holds its shape really well and thought i'm going to dig myself a hearth into that so then once you've placed your hearth there and you've you've cooked in it you're going to get flakes of ceramic coming up because the heat from your fire even if you're just cooking is going to fire into clay and then it what it takes and this is the most beautiful thing i think in humans and you see it in in children you see it in people even if they're not rediscovering something new but it's that taking that spark of understanding this happens when i do this well then from there i can then take it and i can do this and it's it's the way that our brains work we can yeah we can take a concept and then transform it and make it into something that that benefits us or suits what we want to do so i can't be sure that's how it was discovered but it seems likely to me that the yeah that somebody made a fire to cook with to heat their their home whatever and mm-hmm. noticed the clay being transformed into ceramic yeah. then digging it up and doing stuff with it would be my guess 
And because I guess it still changes a lot over time. So you have that sort of the, maybe the first use of clay where you're just using the raw clay, but I'm trying to va- desperately remember my experimental archaeology classes at uni. And I vaguely remember in pottery course, uh, there was something about the inclusions in the clay and you yes. use other things to make it I mean, you can actually dig clay because when the Donnyvestnitsa was made, it was the end of the Ice Age and a lot of the clay was created by the ice um, shifting. And so you end up with the ground down particles that make up the clay. And we're at the end of the Ice Age, which means that soil hadn't really covered up the clay a great deal. And because of that, you would have had quick and easy access these people would have had fairly quick, easy access to the clay layers. And it's unlikely that it had too much nasty inclusions in it. But in all honesty, one of the things we spend most of our time doing in the workshop, because we can't process all of our clay, it's just not time, uh, you know, we just can't do it. It, it, There isn't the time in the day that would take us the longest um, making the pots. So what we actually do is we buy clay. I mean, it's all natural. So it's, it's, you know, it's dug uh, somewhere else. And then we spend a lot of time putting things back into it, putting (laughs) grit back into it. So so the grit is quite useful. The grit can help to keep the object from exploding in in the firing and keep it a bit more stable. So I don't think, uh, unless it's a big pebble, (laughs) I don't think that they would have really had to do a great deal in terms of processing the clay. I think they probably would have dug it, um, got rid of your major stones but you probably could use it quite instantly to be honest Um, yeah and how much does the use of of kind of clay as in the material itself vary over time so i mean you have this initial quite simple i suppose then uh, method of clay creation um, or clay object creation and presumably at what point does it kind of start taking off and getting a bit more industrialized I mean, it's difficult to say because the number of sherds found at this at this site, there were they reckon there must have been around seven hundred animals, I think. Oh wow! And there were seventy seven um, figures in total. So when you're talking about mass production, actually, <laughs> it's possible that the ones that were found were just the wasters, and the wasters mean the ones that broke in the firing. <gasps> and it's perfectly possible because geographically, I'll have to check this, uh, but geographic, this site was situated in a, in a sort of a logical kind of trade route, if that makes sense. It, 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 it kind of was within a corridor, and I'd have to look that up. So it is very possible that people migrating from one area to the other were actually passing through there and that these people were providing figurines for them because it's just such a ma- it's such a large uh, proportion. And I think Graham did the maths, and it's something like if you reckon that 20% the, 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 the number found, the 700, only represents a 20% loss rate. And a 20% loss rate is actually a very, very high loss rate. So yeah. if we assume a very high loss rate, we would be looking at a total produ- production of 3,500 figures. Wow. That's less than five figures per day for a year. And we could definitely, I mean, I could definitely bang out more than, um, did I say five figures? <laughs> ten, pig- ten figures per day for a year would give you that number. I mean, I'm not saying it is definitely a mass production site. I'm just saying that there was a lot of figures there. So when we talk about mass production, that there, 
we, we can't, I don't think we can fully discount that at this particular site. But I mean, the Romans probably really started your absolute mass production. They, you know, they started getting into moulds. Um, and then once you've got a potter's wheel, when the potter's wheel comes in, you can bash out pots a lot quicker than you can just doing it by hand. And I think that probably is when we can really say mass production properly started. In terms of what I find quite interesting, and Graham and I were talking about this the other day, is in terms of ceramics, building and making things, there's, there's, vague, there's, a, there's a number of kind of ways you can do it. So you can pinch it, you can coil it, you can make slabs and um, create pots. But predominantly, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, and I'm not saying all pots, but predominantly all pots are made round. We, we have the, the capacity mm. to make them square, but if you look at prehistoric pottery, predominantly it's all very round. And it's so interesting that that ceramic must have, pottery and clay must have been discovered in multiple places all over the world. And yet the, the, the actual physical techniques for using it and making it still remain pretty similar mm -hmm. then as they do now. I mean, we have got other technologies that have come in, but ultimately I'm still, even if I was making a modern piece, I'm still working in a similar way to a prehistoric potter might be working, which is, you know, amazing. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Which makes, I guess it's just one of those materials indeed that there's no, I, well, I guess you can't, it, obviously it does develop. And like you say, the inclusions develop over time. And I suppose the style of firing and things develop over time because you get porcelain and all of that kind of stuff. But still, mm. it's not like almost, you know, phones where you can have suddenly this amazing new technology develop or is there, are there amazing innovations that I mean, happen? There are innovations. I mean, you're getting some innovations now. You've got 3D printing, she says, spit, spit, horrible 3D printing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's useful in its own right. But, but you know, you've got these things that, 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 that are coming in and it is quite fascinating that these new technologies are coming in and they should and they should change and it should move on. It's just interesting that the main ways that potters work, it, it still kind of does pretty much remain the same and 3d printing of ceramics is is at this stage pretty niche you i would say you've probably got more people working in traditional styles than you do in that style and and we're talking about thousands of years of things pretty much staying very samey which is fascinating yeah. i mean obviously we've got electronic wheels and we do we do i must admit do some of our roman stuff on on the the electric potter's wheel but, but it's still a potter's wheel it's, it's still, still a potter's wheel and it, yeah. it's not that dissimilar you know the, the only reason really is, is graham's back cannot maintain using <laughs> that wheel for for you know every day um to create pots he, he's very fast on it and it, it is a very efficient wheel so we've got a stick wheel that, that relies on momentum you, you know we we've got to consider our health and also the expectations of our customers and if we were doing it all on a stick wheel you know we would have to adjust the pricing accordingly <laughs> so it's just to do with you know the, the way that modern life has you know works basically but yeah. as much as possible we we do things the way that they would have been done we make them as they would have been done because they don't look right you you, you cannot throw a bronze age beaker on a potter's wheel and then disguise that you just mm. you, you can pretty much but you just can't really get rid of all of that evidence yeah. um, so yeah. which i was i was curious about that waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. If we talk a bit more about, about potted history and, and the work that you are doing. So indeed, you're doing a lot of, I guess, what would be called experimental archaeology yeah. in a way then. Yeah, we, we do do a lot. And we, as I said earlier, we, we make things for people to do experiments in. We do, as I said earlier, may use more modern processed clays and then we include mm. the correct inclusions into <laughs> it because that's um, the way to do it. And, and yeah, we, we form them in the same way that they would be formed. We have and we do go through the whole process. We've had people posting us clay from all over the country. And wow. we will yeah, we'll make, we will happily make with clay that's provided to us from a specific area of the country. It just it just takes a little bit longer to kind of you've got to dry it out to be able to post it, and you've got to you know, and then we kind of get it all going, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and it just takes that little bit of extra time. But yeah, we can and do work as authentically as people want us to work. Um, so mm-hmm. it's just up to the client really as to what yeah. they need. I, I mean, I'm a massive fan of experimental archaeology. I do a lot. Actually, it's funny when you're talking about adding in the inclusions. I remember I wanted to look at use wear traces on a piece of ivory and I did it. But then I was looking at it and going, oh, it's just too clean. Like the archaeological objects of dirt in all the pores and everything. So I went yeah. out and just rubbed it in some soil for a bit and then came back in. It's like, ah, yes, there you go. I can yeah. see them now. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, and, and yeah. We do that with, the, with our Roman lamps and things. Once they've been used, they do just look more authentic you've got the right burn patterns and yeah yeah Yeah, my one has a nice uh, oil stain on the top as well because i accidentally spilt the olive oil yeah me too (laughs) (laughs) but but yes no big fan of experimental archaeology and i love indeed the idea that you sort of come more from the the potting background or shall we say the potter's potter's background into it and did you find that it was i don't know how to explain it i mean what's the advantages i guess or disadvantage of coming from that side of things, rather than necessarily being an archaeologist who dabbles in pottery, you know how how is it yeah, being? I a- mean, I think I think we all achieve when we put our skills together, and I, I would never ever think we could replace the work that an archaeologist could do. We have on occasions had archaeologists perhaps look down on what we do because it's because it we, it doesn't come with a PhD or a doctorate, mm. and I think that can be a little bit of a disadvantage. And I, I, we're talking perhaps more old school archaeologists, and I'm certainly mm-hmm. not going to name any names. So, so that can be quite difficult: is to make yourself heard. 
And you, this will surprise you. Sometimes it's harder for me to make myself heard than it is Graham to make myself heard. me. I know, it's amazing. There have been the odd occasions where a, a question has been asked and I've answered it and had a very sniffy response. Um, and so the same question has been put to Graham. And surprise, surprise, he gives the same example, which the, the person getting the answer is, is looking, oh, nodding. Oh, yes. Mm. Oh, oh, you should oh. just throw yeah. a Venus figurine at him. <laughs> <laughs> I just roll my eyes and walk away. I just think no. But yeah, so, so sometimes I suppose coming at it from a potter's point of view, there might be some people who perceive that as being somehow lesser if that makes mm-hmm. sense but we are very very lucky we have such a wonderful community of archaeologists who we do discuss and talk with what's really nice is they are so willing to share their information which means that we can then do a better job and then we can throw it back to them and they can then use their their knowledge to you know to come together and then we come up with the best ideas and i think that i mean experimental archaeology is being studied now in universities which is wonderful and i think it's that hands-on practicing using things and and i talk for any skill cooking napping anything any of these skills that that require a craftsman i think getting someone who really knows what they're doing will help us all understand better how things work and yeah we would never ever claim to be a fine set specialist if somebody comes to me with a bit of a shirt i might be able to help them out but it's just not our area so we're just much stronger as a a team i think yes definitely i couldn't agree more i must say (laughs) i think it's uh, and especially because yeah i i work a lot with artifacts obviously i do artifact analysis is my main job but i get most of my insights from those technologies that i personally have experience with because i know how they work and i have experienced it myself and i think that that's uh yeah a pretty essential and i think it is and it is wonderful and that's why it's nice to get to be able to talk to you and talk to other people because there's just points of view that Mm -hmm. well you you just you you see through your eyes the whole time and you you can't see through someone else's so to have them kind of throw something into your viewpoint and go oh god yeah and -hmm. it just opens up the conversation uh, and makes it far more worthwhile yeah Um, yeah. like uh, the venus figurines being birds um i think that's a very worthwhile uh (laughs) conclusion to make sorry i shouldn't i shouldn't uh, (laughs) comment on that too much so in terms of potted history then you already mentioned briefly so it was graham your father who started it and that's how it kind of came about was it always historic pottery that was being no um when when we were in southern africa um we ran well we i was a child but um dad (laughs) and mum ran a a pottery where they made dinner services and things like that but when they came back to the uk dad's always had a a strong interest in history and somebody had asked him if if he thought he might be able to replicate something knowing he was a potter it was like oh i know you're a potter so maybe you can do this so he had a go and he really enjoyed it and, and then it just kind of went from there. And because he's so passionate about history, he put a lot of effort into it. And I think he just gained a name for it. And it, it's gone from there. And rarely now do we make anything other than historic items. Occasionally we, we will. Um, I think occasionally just almost like um, like a holiday. You just need to do something else. <laughs> but it's usually just that. It's, it's, it's a planter for the garden or something um, small. We, we don't tend to... 
we just yeah it it, it it changed completely so we went from dinner services and that mass producing those sorts of things to something quite different mm. um, but i think he's i think he's happier much happier <laughs> doing this <laughs> of course always when you're yeah, doing yeah. anything archaeological <laughs> or historical it's always got to be better <laughs> yeah, yeah oh absolutely and i'm curious as to the kind of process of of creating the objects do you study the archaeological objects do you study analyses of the objects how we we try and get as much information as we can possibly get so um, given the opportunity we will go and handle the object that's not always possible Mm. but we have been let into the british museum sometimes to you know (gasps) handle things it's very exciting going into that room you get to kind of touch things and look at things obviously in a very controlled environment with (laughs) things and say i just want to see what the inclusions are (laughs) (laughs) Um, so so given the chance yes we will go as deep into it as we possibly can but sometimes sometimes it is a case of images or whatever whatever information we can get we do have a massive library that is growing and yeah, we look into that all the time for items. And we, we do, we want to research and make absolutely sure that we, we know as much about an object as we can possibly know about it. So yeah, yeah. a lot of research does go into each item. Yeah, very good. And what's your favourite object to make? That's a really tough one, I think. Um, <laughs> I quite like doing the modelling things. So I, I like to do um, statues. Um, so if there's anything like that, it tends to be me. So I really do enjoy making the goddesses. Mm-hmm. I've made a Dionysus statue, that sort of thing. And it's really good because dad does not like doing that so much. So we, we sort of have this natural balance where that's what I like to do. So okay. anything like that and prehistoric prehistoric bronze age all of those things see i just love it all <laughs> <laughs> which is good yeah, it's yeah. very good that you like what you do yeah, <laughs> it yeah. makes it easy yeah, and yeah. it's nice indeed that you have that kind of team i wonder whether that happened in the past as well right like whether you know one of the yeah. people in the village really liked making the beakers and the other one really liked making the figures well, i think i think it must have done and, and it, 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 it was never really discussed it was just kind of I enjoyed doing it and dad clearly didn't. And so, mm. but, you know, if we get a request in, it, it just it just naturally falls to me that there's not really a discussion about it because he's, he's not that interested. But yeah, I, I reckon that I reckon there must have been. You, you do see you do see sometimes, particularly in oil lamps and things, styles. Um, mm. that you think uh, and you think that that looks like that could have been done by the same sort of person and I suspect that that is it that if you were good at it you would be set to do that so that someone else could be set to do something else um, yeah. and do the best do it the best <laughs> yeah and I suppose indeed if you're enjoying it then yeah. you usually are better at it right yeah. because you're I think, you're, I think yeah. that's it yeah it's yeah. a job and what would you say is the most popular object that you sell at potted history you know the the, the woman of Lindorf, she is really popular um, very but, good. yeah she she is a very popular i mean i love her i have one at home and I'm, I'm not a particularly spiritual kind of a person but there's something about the weight of her mm-hmm. and i also quite like to hold her in my hand sometimes and think about the other ones that are around the world and we have sent them worldwide and uh, sorry, I got distracted because I was thinking we, we recently um, sent a parcel to Svalbard. <laughs> wow. was like amazing to Father Christmas in Svalbard. <laughs> um, but you know, literally things are like spread all over the world. And I like to hold her in my hand and think about like, you know, where the other ones are. Like, like she's sort of part of this amazing tribe. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so, but like I said, I'm not particularly spiritual necessarily, but there's something quite powerful about that. So I can, I can understand why she's popular and the Stonehenge Cup. 
the Stonehenge cup. People are mad. Oh, very cool. Yeah. yeah. So, I haven't got one of them yet. I'm saving yeah. up. <laughs> I'm trying to, I think I might, I have to do another uh, a video on them, right? So it's, it's work expense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm curious. So you mentioned before that you've done kind of workshops with kids uh, and those sort of things. Yeah. What, so you obviously you make the replicas, you do some workshops, what other things are on well, the we, we do um uh, so we're, we're building up our youtube channel where we do chat about things like the stonehenge cup and theories we, we do understand that they're theories and we do sort of <laughs> try and help people understand how the objects were used in terms of the roman things that's easy so um today in fact i'm going to probably going to be tasting it later i've been cooking in a clubanus and recording oh. doing it and the I reason the it was, i know it, it's actually it really, so good, <laughs> so good. Um, <laughs> but that helps people if they want to buy one to be able to understand how to use it because oh. you can't quite cook with them in the same way as you would cook with a thing in the oven we're used to just shoving a thing into a really hot oven but with <laughs> these pots you can't really just fling them onto a fire because they'll get shocked so um oh. so yeah so the the, the the point of the youtube channel is to think Think about how things were used and also um, help people who might be wanting to use them, you know, use them effectively and safely, and etc. etc. So it's it's a big old mine of information and pottery joy is what it is. <gasps> Perfect. Oh yes, and I'll make sure to put the link in the uh, yeah, in the show notes because it sounds uh, yeah, it sounds really good. And uh, is there anything else exciting coming up in the future for potted history? Uh, there, uh, well, there, there there is. Sometimes I have to do a quick little log and make sure. Is there anything I'm not allowed to mention? <laughs> right. True. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it? <laughs> the top secret uh, Venus of Willendorf. Uh, so we've had to sign um confidentiality disclosure thingy with ah, things. Yes, so on occasions it. you have to go, am I allowed to mention that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know if you call that. So there, there's something with Stonehenge, an exciting project about the Neolithic from around the, the world. But it's an exciting uh, sort of Stonehenge Neolithic oh. collaboration kind of thing going on. So yes. that is that is very exciting. More re- and then this weekend we've got another kiln firing at Vindolanda because we we have our replica kiln at Vindolanda. Mm-hmm. So the items that get fired there authentically, so they've been made authentically, and then they get fired authentically and then they end up on the authentic online shop <laughs> full authenticity yes. throughout the whole process. <laughs> i may buy them with my authentic money <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, well, um, I think that marks the end of our tea break. Should probably, uh, it sounds like you have a lot to do. <laughs> to <prepare. right. laughs> Thank you so, so much for joining me today, yeah. uh, Sarah. It was really nice to chat with you. Thank you. It was really nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, good. And if anyone wants to find out more about Sarah's work or the Potted History's work and about clay objects from human history and prehistory and, of course, the YouTube channel, do check the show notes on the podcast homepage and make sure to visit the Potted History website to uh, pick up some wonderful little replicas. I hope that everyone enjoyed our journey today and see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Come.